0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. In August of 1986, a 50-year-old British musical opened at the Marquee Theatre. Me and My Girl was a huge hit in London and had come to America with its leading man,
1: Robert Lindsay. Now listen... You could no more walk the Lambeth way than we could walk the Mayfair way. The musical
0: is part Pygmalion, part Cinderella, and tells the tale of Bill Snipson, a cockney 'er ne'er-do-well who turns out to be an earl and is pressured to forsake his Lambeth girlfriend, Sally Smith, in order to inherit his title and estate. Well, hilarity and, of course, dancing ensue.
2: When somebody asked me what show has delighted me more and what show did I leave the theater and just having the feeling of pure joy.
0: Theater historian and writer Mark Robinson.
2: Me and My Girl is the show that comes to mind immediately anytime anyone asks me that. I smiled, I laughed, I had such a good time in that musical. I loved Me and My Girl.
0: And Robinson wasn't alone. Critics and audiences alike loved the musical. But behind the scenes, there were problems almost from the start. Not so much with the show, but with the theater itself. As we discussed in the previous episode, five historic theater buildings had been demolished to make way for this grand hotel theater complex. And the troubles and controversies that led up to its construction continued to plague the Marriott Hotel and Marquis Theater.
2: It wasn't meeting city plans. They had to keep redoing the plans for this theater. There wasn't enough wing space. There weren't accommodations made for a bathroom somewhere near the theater. People were going to have to go to the lobby. you know. So they had to rethink this theater the very last minute in the building. Even as the building was going up, they had to rethink the layout of how that theater was going to work. So there was a lot of problems with that along the way.
0: In fact, it was reported that there were no dressing rooms in the building initially and were only added on as an afterthought. Then there were constant issues with the heating and sewer systems during the run of the show, which led Actors' Equity to threaten a walkout. But it wasn't these problems that led to the closing of Me and My Girl, because this award-winning musical had one of the highest box office grosses on Broadway in the late 1980s. Yet the show was ended by theater owners who were banking on an even more successful show to take its place. Welcome to Closing Night, a new theater podcast about famous and forgotten Broadway shows that close too soon. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I'll be your guide in this first season as we focus on the tumultuous and contentious beginning of one of Broadway's youngest venues and its continued struggle as show after show has come and gone from here, leading many to call this the curse of the marquee theater. The story of Me and My Girl begins in 1937. Well, technically two years earlier, if you want to be exact. You see, the lead character of the show, Bill Snibson, first appeared in another musical called 20 to 1 that opened on the West End in 1935, starring English comedian and silent film star Lupino Lang. It was set in the world of horse racing, with Bill joining an anti-gambling organization. 20 to 1 was written by Lewis Arthur Rose and Frank Iden, with music composed by Billy Mayerle. After more than 1,000 performances on the West End and in various tours, that show's success led Rose to revive the character in Me and My Girl, bringing back Lupino Lane, of course, who not only took on the lead role again, but directed and produced the show as well. But this time, Rose brought in new collaborators, co-writing the book and lyrics with Douglas Ferber, and leaving the score to composer Noel Gay, who has been called the closest Britain ever came to having their own Irving Berlin. In fact, at one point, Gay had four shows running simultaneously on the West End, a feat only ever repeated by Andrew Lloyd Webber. And so the original production of Me and My Girl opened on the West End in December of 1937. But it was not an immediate hit. It actually didn't attract much attention until a matinee performance in early 1938 was broadcast live on BBC Radio following the cancellation of a sporting event. Then the show really took off. One of the more popular songs from the show, The Lambeth Walk, went on to become a favorite dance style of the day. The Times of London even ran a story in October 1938 claiming, while dictators rage and statesmen talk, all Europe dances to the Lambeth Walk. The following year, BBC Television broadcast the entire production of Me and My Girl live from Victoria Palace Theatre. It was actually the first time a full musical had ever been shown on live television. Then later in 1939, MGM adapted the musical into a film called The Lambeth Walk. All the while, that original London stage production played through the early years of World War II and ultimately ran for 1,646 performances. The show's popularity has led to multiple revivals on the West End. Most notably, a newly revised production in 1985, produced by Richard Armitage. He brought in actor and writer Stephen Fry to dust off the cobwebs of the old script, with help from director Mike Ockrent. But first, they had to find the original book and lyrics, which, according to New York Magazine, required detective work almost as thrilling as the show itself. Here's actor Tim Curry, who played the lead role in the U.S. national tour of Me and My Girl, describing the long and arduous process of reconstructing the script.
1: When they went to revive it, there were various
0: pieces of the script missing. Um, so a lot of it has been reconstructed from memory. The producer who revived it was in fact the son of the composer,
1: and um, he had to do an, an enormous amount of research to find everything and try and piece it all together. One song was found in the family attic. One song was found in the archives of the BBC. And the script is a kind of huge bunch of old jokes, really. So where there weren't any old jokes, we just remembered some others.
0: Then, once all the pieces were assembled, Fry and Ockrent went about revising the script, dropping some of the outdated jokes, condensing a long second act, and adding songs from Gay's catalog of other musicals. Including songs like "Leaning on a Lamp Post" and the lovely ballad "Once You Lose Your Heart," the lead role of Bill Snibson was offered to Robert Lindsay, an actor who had made his reputation in Shakespeare as well as BBC dramas and sitcoms. Initially, he turned down the offer two or three times, thinking the show too old and outdated but once they persuaded him to listen to the newly revised score, he finally accepted. Playing opposite him as Sally was a relatively unknown actress, Emma Thompson. Yep, that Emma Thompson. Though best known for her film work now, back in the 1980s, she was just getting her start doing sketch comedy on television mostly with the comedic team of Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry. He was the one who actually recommended Thompson for what turned out to be a breakthrough role, establishing her as a respected performer. In fact, this revised version of Me and My Girl made stars of both Thompson and Lindsay, as it became a huge hit on the West End, being nominated for two Olivier Awards in 1985 and winning both of them. The first for Outstanding Performance by its lead actor, Robert Lindsay, who beat out Combe Wilkinson from Les Miserables. And their second win was for Musical of the Year, once again beating out Les Miserables for the top honor. However, despite all the accolades and success, there was one actress who was ready to move on. Emma Thompson told The Telegraph in 2010 that she actually had her first bout with clinical depression during that West End production saying that she really didn't change her clothes or answer the phone much but went to the theater every night was cheerful and sang the Lambeth walk quote that's what actors do still she ended up leaving the show after 15 months british audiences and critics on the other hand felt quite differently and couldn't get enough of the show leading the producers and creative team to feel the show was finally ready to transfer to Broadway. James M. Niederlander and his organization were not only producing Me and My Girl, they owned and operated the Adelphi Theatre in London where it was playing. In addition, they operated the soon-to-be-open Marquee Theatre in New York as well so it was only fitting that they would choose their new Broadway house for the American debut of this highly successful show. However, controversy and resentment still plagued the Marriott Marquis Hotel as it opened to guests in September of 1985. Many actors and other artists were still bitter over the demolition of those historic theaters that made way for the Marquis, so, they refused to take part in any activities at the hotel. The management at the Marquis was painfully aware of this sentiment. Thomas D. Reese, the general manager of the hotel, told Newsday Theater is our primary product. Our object is to reestablish our relationship with the theater community. It just takes time to heal these old wounds. And so, one such effort to re-establish that relationship was made on October 1985, when the Actors' Fund of America was set to hold a benefit cocktail party as part of the grand opening festivities for the Marriott Marquis. However, leaders at Actors' Equity formally asked the Actors' Fund to cancel their event. Actress Colleen Dewhurst, who was now the president of Actors' Equity, was one of the performers most actively involved in fighting the demolition. But Vincent Vitelli, the secretary and general manager of the Actors Fund, said that the organization would stand by its commitment.
1: We have been booked there, and we didn't feel there was sufficient time for a change. Besides, we can't take a stance on a political issue. We're not a political organization. We didn't take a stand when those theaters were coming down, and we won't take one now.
0: Now, as it turns out, that cocktail party was paid for by the hotel, which also made a five-figure donation toward the construction of an Actors Fund nursing home in Inglewood, New Jersey.
1: If an organization comes along and offers you funds, you don't turn them down.
0: Still, actors themselves had mixed feelings about the marquee. In that previously mentioned Newsday article, one actress, who wanted to remain anonymous, said, "...among theater people, it's called the penitentiary." Jack Klugman, star of The Odd Couple, said, "...what do I do? I would rather these hotels not be built. I was here when they were tearing down the Morosco. I have two bricks I saved I'll never forget. I don't know who to be angry with. They've been very nice to me here." Another actress, Carol Shelley, who starred in the Norman Conquests at Morosco Theatre, was a bit more diplomatic. It's a beautiful hotel. I think it's more beautiful on the inside than the outside. I just wish they had put it somewhere else. Now, if you listened to the previous episode, then it will come as no surprise that Helen Hayes herself appeared at events in the same hotel that had torn down the old theatre bearing her name. To Hayes, this was just progress in motion. So it begs the question that if Helen Hayes, the first lady of the American theater, and the first woman to achieve EGOT status, if she could make peace with the new hotel theater complex, why couldn't others do the same? A viewpoint that some actors like John Ehrlich from Big River agreed with, as well as Leroy Reams from 42nd Street, who simply didn't understand all the fuss. The theater is only as good as whatever's playing in it. No one was using those theaters. All the stars who protested, why didn't they put a disco in one of them? They didn't. The area around it was always dark, always unclean. There were always undesirables around. Now, the area is safer. we brought a lot more people into the theater. Across the pond, Me and My Girl was preparing for its transfer to Broadway. But it was going to be without leading lady Emma Thompson, who, not surprisingly, decided to go back to television instead. In fact, its lead actor, Robert Lindsay, was also
1: resistant at first to be a part of the Broadway run. I had terrible doubts when they first asked me to come to Broadway with it, because the whole thing seemed so terribly English and London-based, so I said no again. And it wasn't until they pointed out to me that half the audience we played to in the West End last summer were, in fact, American tourists that I realized maybe Americans were understanding it after all.
0: Now, in order for a British actor to come to New York, there has to be what's called reciprocation. You see, that's an agreement between the American actors' equity and British equity for a swap of sorts, which means in order for Lindsay to come to Broadway with me and my girl, an American actor, had to be sent to the West End to perform there. And in this case, it appears to be Ron Holgate, Tony winner from the musical 1776, who went to London in this swap to originate the role of Tito Morelli in *Lend me a tenor Before arriving on Broadway, though, Me and My Girl had an out-of-town run in Los Angeles at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, while there, Robert Lindsay and the show's new leading lady, American actress Marianne Plunkett, stopped by the Merv Griffin Show.
1: With big just a few people that both of us know, and we'll have love, laughter, be happy,
0: Meanwhile, in New York City, at the Marquee, workmen were still busy with wiring, plaster, carpets, and other fittings in early July 1986. Quote, the audience won't know there's any more work to do, said Arthur Rubin, general manager of the Nederlander organization. But he added, There will still be some odds and ends. A little electrical thing here, something else there... And all this was in preparation for the official grand opening of the Marquee Theatre with a series of concerts by British singer and pop music icon, Shirley Bassey. Come
1: on, babe, we're gonna paint the town And roll that jazz, I'm gonna rouge my knees And roll my stockings down
0: Jeremy Gerard with Newsday had this to say about the entertainer's opening night performance.
1: Bassie and her brassy orchestral backup let off with all that jazz. And the irony of a Broadway showstopper opening a review that has more in common with Las Vegas than it does with New York in a theater that also has more in common with Las Vegas than it does with New York could not have been lost on those in the audience who recall that three older theaters were raised to make way for the marquee. Bassi's style is not so much tasteless as it is taste free, another quality shared with the theater itself.
0: So, as you can see, much like New York actors, some critics as well just couldn't let go of their disdain for this theater monstrosity that had been built on the rubble of beloved historic theaters. But Gerard eventually focused his assault directly on Bassie's vocals.
1: Bassie had some pitch problems at the official opening Wednesday night, which can be painful when a big voice is magnified a thousandfold. But she generally found the right note she was aiming for, after not too painful an interval.
0: That may have been one critic's opinion, but not exactly the best start for a theater already in an unfavorable position with many in the theater community. The hope, though, was that Me and My Girl would change all that. Yes, it was a hit on the West End, but that's never a surefire thing on Broadway. New York City Center Encore's artistic director, Jack Vertel, who oversaw their own revival in 2018, explains what makes me and my girl so different
2: me and my girl is a real english show it's like a musical show it's a kind of musical comedy that is just so identified with that kind of musical entertainment that's the hallmark of what the british do that is kind of the equivalent to vaudeville in the united states
0: and so on opening night august 10th 1986 Stephen Fry and Mike Ockrent stood cautiously at the back of the house, peeping over the back row like Bialystok and Bloom from the producers. But then, at intermission, someone slipped them an early copy of the review from the New York Times theater critic Frank Rich, who did have a few critiques for the music and the updated book, but ultimately he said, One finds oneself wishing that the title song of Me and My Girl would never end. Few musicals of any kind on either side of the Atlantic have had a star to match Robert Lindsay. Once they read this stamp of approval from the New York Times, they were elated. And according to Fry, they went to the bar and got hammered on gin and tonics and could barely stand up during the second act. And Frank Rich wasn't the only one singing his praises. Other critics called the show lovable and thrilling or sheer happiness. Sure, there were some critics who mentioned those old theaters that had been knocked down for this more sterile-looking theater. But overall, they were ecstatic about this very British musical and its leading man.
2: It was so funny. It was tuneful. Robert Lindsay was giving a performance, a career-defining performance as far as I'm concerned. The amount of energy that he needed to navigate that role and just be... On all the time. Like it was a tour de force. Every minute of what he did on that stage was calculated, but calculated with comedy at its heart.
0: And so several months later, in 1987, Me and My Girl was nominated for 13 Tony Awards, compared to only 10 nominations for the other big show that year, Les Miserables. Here's the one and only Bernadette Peters announcing one of the winners that year. And giving a much more theatrical pronunciation to that French musical.
1: The nominees for best performance by a leading actor in a musical are Roderick Cook, Oh Coward, Robert Lindsay, Me and My Girl, Terence Mann, Les Miserables, Comb Wilkinson, Les Miserables, and The winner is Robert Lindsay, me and my girl.
0: Me and My Girl ended up with a total of three Tony Awards. One for Lindsay, another for Marianne Plunkett, who won Best Actress, and Gillian Gregory won for Best Choreography. Unlike the Olivier Awards, however, Les Mis did walk away with the top prize of Best Musical this time around, as well as seven other Tony Awards. But I don't think that mattered much to Robert Lindsay. Can
1: you imagine how I feel being an English actor holding this on Broadway. It is quite an extraordinary feeling. Uh, To everyone in the green room, I know, hi. And everyone in the theater, Marianne said it all. I I don't need to say any more, but I'd just like to thank Richard Armitage. Richard, you were right. Thank you. Remember, it
0: was producer Richard Armitage who helped persuade Lindsay to stay with the show as it transferred to Broadway. I think it's safe to say that decision paid off for both gentlemen. Now, while Les Mis may have won more Tonys that night, Me and My Girl was king of the box office for 1987, beating out the big musicals like Cats, Starlight Express, and, of course, Les Mis.
2: At that time on Broadway, you know, we were were dealing with a lot of the big mega musicals. Musical theater in the 80s had gone to the pop operas and a lot of dark subject matter. Musical comedy was kind of thin throughout the 1980s. There weren't a whole lot of them. And the few that opened up prior to Me and My Girl, most of them didn't really run that long. It wasn't like, you know, nowadays where you can get two or three good comedy musicals. In a season that, you know, make you feel good and make you leave the theater with a big smile on your face. I think sometimes people underestimate the need for a good musical comedy. And me and my girl gave that in spades.
0: With any long-running show, there always comes a time when replacements start taking over for the original cast. One of the biggest changes came when Jim Dale took over the lead role from Lindsay shortly after the Tony Awards. One of those nominees for Best Supporting Actress was Jane Summerhays, who played Lady Jacqueline, a noblewoman who pursues Bill after breaking off her engagement to another suitor. Summerhays continued on with the show after Lindsay left, and sometime later she joined a roundtable discussion of actors for the American Theatre Wing, where she talked about the differences between the two leading men.
1: Well, their timing is different. I mean, they're two different people.
0: That was one of the challenges for me, for working with Jim, and that is to try, after doing it for over a year, with Robert, to make that adjustment. And it's very interesting. I've learned a lot. It's not something you can sit down and say, well, I'll make this adjustment. It just happens. And it's instinctive, and it happens like that, or it doesn't. I think when you're playing comedic
1: scenes like this, you, you don't have time to talk or to think about it. You just do it.
0: Frank Rich from The New York Times was back again to weigh in, calling Dale puckishly amusing, and comparing him to Fred Astaire. But he went on to say, It would be preposterous to pretend it is the same show with Mr. Dale that it was with Mr. Lindsay. Let the invidious comparisons fall where they may, in place of the red-hot comet that once streaked across the marquee stage, one now finds a fixed, slightly frosty star. Nonetheless, audiences flocked to see Me and My Girl with or without Robert Lindsay. It remained one of the top five box office draws on Broadway every year of its run. There were some minor issues, like the one encountered by Ed Joff, who played in the orchestra. He recalled that the designers neglected to provide steps to get into the pit. But then there were bigger problems— like those described by the show's wardrobe supervisor, Linda Berry, to the New York Times.
2: By the nature of our job, we spend as many as 14 hours in this atmosphere. We've had to work with a lack of heat, with a lack of drainage. We're getting headaches and nausea. People don't get over them.
0: The nausea was a result of the theater's air intake being located next to the exterior vent of the hotel sewer system. So, this meant that whatever odors or particles the hotel's sewage was pumping out, the theater's air vent was bringing in.
2: We smell smells that we can't identify the source for. We've been working in conditions which are at best questionable since moving in, in July 86, and which are sometimes intolerable.
0: Additionally, the sewer system would back up into the bathroom toilets, as well as the drain pipes in the theater's floor. And on top of all the sewage issues, the backstage and onstage areas were always cold. That's because the stage area didn't have its own heating system. And despite partial fixes here and there, cast members could even see their own breath during particularly cold days. Me and My Girl was no small production. It employed a cast and crew of about 160 people. And in 1988, Actors' Equity and The Wardrobe Union threatened to pull their members out of the show unless the heating and ventilation systems were improved and something was done about the plumbing.
2: We've been here a long time. Our concern at this point is that management is sufficiently impressed with these conditions that they take them seriously, which I think they do.
0: The Nederlanders eventually agreed that the plumbing and ventilation systems were problematic. (laughs) Needless to say... And this prompted Marriott to spend $500,000 on dedicated heating, ventilation, and plumbing systems for the Marquee Theater. I guess there's the old saying, better late than never. But Arturo Parazzi, stage manager for the musical, summed it up this way. Quote, This was a new house. What was done for the first time could have been done right. But while it seems that minimal construction efforts were made toward the cast and crew experience, much more thought, however, went into the audience experience. Architect John Portman designed the theater so that no seat was farther than 80 feet from the stage. Director Mike Ockrent noted that this 1,600-seat theater had the feel of 1,200 seats and was surprised at the intimacy of the space. Yet, architectural critic for the New York Times wrote that the overall design is not a theater environment, but that of a hotel, of homogenized hospitality, better suited to a convention than a chorus line. Here's our resident theater historian for the podcast, Mark Robinson, once again, with his own take on the look and feel of the marquee theater.
2: You know, some people will call it sterile. I kind of like the, the Art Deco look of it. To me, it, there's, there's something that feels like you're going into a different world to see a show. And I don't like that about any theater where it kind of feels special. And like I said, it feels more convention center when you're going into the building itself. It, it feels a little more McMansion. If, if, you, know what I, you know what I'm saying? McMansions are nice, clean, new houses, but there's nothing all that special about the architecture or any detail work in the houses. I felt the same way about that theater.
0: However, despite all these maintenance and design issues, Me and My Girl was an unquestionable hit. Its combination of a tuneful score, British wit and physical comedy, infectious dancing and a strong cast made it a favorite among theatergoers and critics alike, whether on Broadway or the national tour. I'm
1: your mom, the Lambert Doing the Lambeth walk.
2: I love that. There's nothing sensational about me and my gal except the excellent cast led by Tim Curry and Donna Bullock, and it's just plain good old
1: musical fun.
0: Tim Curry played Bill for one year of that U.S. tour that began in October 1987 and finished in May of 1989, while the New York production went through December of that same year, giving it a total of three and a half years on Broadway with 11 previews, and 1,420 performances. Me and My Girl cost $4 million to produce initially on Broadway and returned about 150% in profit to its investors after payment of production costs, according to Ralph Roseman, the show's general manager. That's a payout of $2,500 for every $1,000 invested going into the final year of performances which is a pretty darn good return for Broadway standards. So, you're probably wondering, as I did, with such a big hit production on their hands, why would Me and My Girl close at the Marquee Theatre in December of 1989? Well, it wasn't because of maintenance issues or losing Robert Lindsay in the lead role. And it certainly wasn't due to low ticket sales, because the show had great box office returns week after week. No, I think it was nervousness on the part of the Nederlander organization. You see, except for Me and My Girl, they had few hits among the nine theaters they owned on Broadway, with most of them sitting empty in 1989. They got so desperate for revenue, they even leased one of their theaters, The Mark Hellinger, former home of My Fair Lady, to a church for five years just for some guaranteed income. And the Times Square Church is still there today. So maybe by closing Me and My Girl at the Marquee Theater, the Nederlanders were hedging their bets on a new musical that they thought would bring in even bigger ticket sales in nineteen ninety. And that show they put all their hopes on was a musical continuation of another hit show from years earlier, Annie 2, Miss Hannigan's Revenge. Hmm? What's that you say? You you haven't heard of Annie 2? Well, that might be because this much-anticipated and highly-advertised Annie sequel never opened on Broadway, never went into previews, never even made it past its out-of-town tryout in Washington, D.C., The full story of this musical's tumultuous journey will be the subject of a future episode, but suffice it to say that musical sequels rarely work. Yet, Annie too carried a lot of expectations. But in the end, it simply couldn't live up to the hype. I never thought it was a good idea personally, but I like
2: Annie and I thought, okay, that story's done. We don't need to continue now because much of what worked for the original Annie was the fact that there was this poor little orphan kid who we wanted her to succeed, have her happy ever after. It's a Cinderella story. We love that. You know, she's got somebody good to take care of her. That's enough. Okay. Like we don't need to know more. I also think there was something campy in the title of
0: Miss Hannigan's Revenge. It just sounded a little too like sci-fi movie for me. So... Who knows how long Me and My Girl could have lasted on Broadway. Certainly longer than the 11 months The Marquee sat empty waiting for its next show. I mean, had they slotted Annie 2 for one of their other empty theaters rather than The Marquee, the Nederlanders could have held on to Me and My Girl for another year or two, maybe longer. I mean, the London production kept going till 1993 with more than 3,000 performances. With such a successful show like Me and My Girl closing prematurely, maybe that's the curse of the marquee theater, or maybe just the curse of bad management and decision-making. Either way, to this date, no other show in the history of the marquee has lasted as long nor played as many performances as Me and My Girl. Closing Night is a production of WinMe Media. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, host and executive producer. Dan Delgado is editor and producer, not only for this podcast, but also for his own movie podcast called The Industry, which I highly recommend. Thank you to the other voices you heard in this episode, George Living's, Gabrielle Ruiz, historian Mark Robinson, and our very own Dan Delgado. For a transcript and full list of materials used and cited in this episode, and there were a lot of them, believe me, look for that link in the show notes. Join me next time as another production makes its way to closing night.